so good to be together, so good to sing the praises of the name of the Lord Most High. Let's continue our worship this morning. We're going to turn to the book of Acts. Acts, and you're thinking, why not Genesis 11? Well, because we're going to take the next few weeks <laughs> to look at the book of Ephesians. But the, <laughs> but the scripture reading this morning is in Acts. Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. This is uh, Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders here for context here. We're going to read just a few verses from verse 26 to verse 30. So if you'd please turn there. Acts chapter 20, verses 26 through 30. And then our, uh, you know, the book that we're going to be in again is Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. But for the scripture reading, if you please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 20, verse 26. This is God's word. Therefore, Paul says, I testify to you to this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the opportunity and ability and the privilege, really, to serve you and and to come and be instructed by your holy and inspired word. We are so undeserving of your amazing grace, but that's what makes your grace so amazing. So we love you. We praise you. We pray that you'd be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, again, you can tell from our scripture reading, we're not going to be in Genesis 11. Rather, I'd like to share something that's on my heart and has been for some time, and while I would usually be the first one to tell you to run as fast as you can whenever you hear some preacher get up and say, I want to share from my heart, uh, I think it's important for the health of the body that we all hear this. And really, it's not my heart only, it's the collective heart of your elders, your pastors, the overseers of this flock. It's important you know the that the biblical concept of shepherding is the approach that we have when it comes to how we govern this church. As Paul said in our scripture reading, we as elders are called to shepherd the flock. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 5, to care for the members of this church as a shepherd would care for his sheep, to feed the flock, to lead the flock, to protect the flock, or as Paul says, to guard the the flock, to guard the flock of God. And that's an important distinction in itself. It's God's flock. Uh, we, the five of us are mere under-shepherds, shepherds under the authority of the chief shepherd, 1 Peter 5, 4, shepherds of his flock. It's not our flock. It's not my flock. It's his flock. And our desire as under-shepherds, what we desire to communicate to the, this morning, is that we, a true plurality of five Holy Spirit-appointed overseers, no senior pastor, no lead pastor, no head pastor, but a true plurality 
of overseers have a long-term perspective concerning how we care for the souls of those who have been entrusted to us, or as Peter says, have been allotted to us. We have a long-term approach for how we care for your souls. Even though I despise how the word has been used in recent times, we have a long-term vision for how the health of, uh, for the health of the everlasting souls of this flock, souls which the writer of Hebrews says we will one day have to give an account for before the everlasting God. Therefore, our vision is an eternal vision. And I'll just say it right here and now, that vision does not include doing whatever it takes to cram as many people in here as possible or, or doing whatever we can to go to multiple services or expand the auditorium or Mindset as shepherds, the prayerful foundation of our weekly elders' meetings, the motivation of our co-shepherding this flock is that moment when we stand before the sovereign Lord of the heavens and the earth to give an account for how we've cared for your souls. Okay? In other words, we aren't worried in the slightest bit about what any man outside of this flock says about us or thinks about us. Because we don't have to stand before any mere man to give an account on Judgment Day. No. Our gaze is firmly fixed upon that moment when we stand before our Lord and he says, how did you shepherd my people? Ultimately, his is the only opinion of us that truly matters. That's what drives us. That's what spurs us on. That very moment. And because of that moment, when we stand before him to give an account for how we shepherded this flock, that we always seek to do so in a graciously uncompromising manner, okay? A graciously uncompromising manner. Meaning, as Paul says, we're going to share in love. No, 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 that's not it. I'm missing something there, aren't I? That may be the mantra of American evangelicalism over the past 60 or so years, but that's not what he says. He says, We don't just share in love, we share the truth in love. And it's absolute divine truth that is sometimes too hard for many in the modern day American church to hear. At Lakewood Bible Chapel, we always seek to share the truth, not the trends, but the truth, not the tides, but the truth. We share the truths of God's word and we do so in love, not to attack, not to demean, not to berate, not to belittle, but with a sincere desire as sinners saved by and being sanctified by grace alone ourselves for men and women to grow in the grace and knowledge of their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And when there's not an explicit reference of truth with regard to how this church ought to operate and function, we take the principles, not from our feelings or our preferences, certainly not from cultural influences, but from other texts principles, which we then seek to apply as best as we are able to any given situation. That's why we're not called Lakewood Relevant Chapel (laughs) or Lakewood Opinion Chapel or Lakewood Hot Take Chapel. We're not Lakewood Humanity Chapel or even Lakewood Community Chapel. We're Lakewood Bible Chapel. Everything we do ought to have a Its basis firmly planted upon and firmly rooted in the inspired text, which is why it pains me any time I'm confronted with putting together a topical sermon or series. I don't like going topical. 
I like going to the next text, where the next text dictates what we say. Genesis 11.1, Genesis 11.2, Genesis 11.3. That's my style. That's what we love. For example, it, it pains me this morning to have to hop into the middle of Paul's marvelous letter to the Ephesians, right in the middle of what could take us years to get through on Sunday morning. However, this is very necessary at times. Okay, I believe the truth contained within this letter establishes a perfect guideline for some of the issues we want to address over the coming weeks, including music in the church, roles for men and women in the church, the role of parents in bringing up their children in the, way of the ways of the Lord, and the biblical teaching of every member ministry. Okay? Instruction concerning all these matters is given right here in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. The church, we are told in 1 Timothy, whose elders had not been spared from having vulnerable sheep ripped right out of their hands, had not been spared from division and dissension or even destruction to some extent as ravenous wolves had indeed sprouted up from among them just as Paul said they would. He wrote in his letter to Timothy, his first letter, as I exhorted you when going to Macedonia, that's Acts 20, remain on at Ephesus so that you may command certain ones not to teach a different doctrine, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the stewardship from God which is by faith. Listen to this. The goal of our command is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and an unhypocritical faith. Oh, that every so-called pastor in America would have that verse etched upon their souls. A good conscience and unhypocritical faith. For some, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. They don't understand. He says, I, I told them, Timothy, ravenous wolves would arise from within. They would put themselves in positions of authority for selfish gain. Then they'd begin to lead folks astray. He even lists two of them he personally excommunicated. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. Can you imagine being handed over to Satan by the Apostle Paul? That's how serious this is. I'd like to say, please know that your shepherds, as finite as an imp and imperfect as we are, and certainly not above being held accountable, you're always welcome to come to us and tell us how we can improve. We'd prefer in person, not via text message two weeks after you leave, but <laughs> if you just be an adult and come to us, you hold us accountable. We're, we welcome it gladly, but... As finite and imperfect as we are, we always seek to lead Christ's flock in a way that is honoring and pleasing, not to ourselves, but to him. And one of the ways that we can guard against similar things happening here is in Ephesus is to consider Paul's word in his follow-up letter, words which might even help bring clarity to why we do some of the things that we do here. And it all starts with encouraging true believers to look carefully how you walk. Okay, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. And please be aware, Paul is writing to Christians here. This is a letter to Christians. To born again, spirit-indwelled believers. 
men and women who are saved from the penalty of their sin by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension alone, all for the glory of God alone, and all according to the scriptures alone, including what Paul has spent the first four chapters going over in detail. Now, saying in chapter 5, verse 15, okay, Christian, now that you have been brought out of the domain of darkness and death and the light of life has been shown upon you, now, therefore, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time. Why? Because the days are evil. In other words, you may have been delivered from your enslavement to this evil world system and from the bondage of your own sin nature, but my brothers and sisters, the days are still evil. You're still in this corrupted world. You're still in these mortal bodies. While you're no longer of this evil world system, you are still in this evil world. On account of this, he says in verse 17, do not be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. That's true wisdom, as we'll see. He says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Of course, you have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of you. He can never be taken away from you. He told us back in chapter 1, the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. We are sealed, we are secured by the very Holy Spirit of God. But now, brethren, I urge you, be controlled by the Spirit. That's what being filled with with the Spirit means. Not that we get any more of Him, but that we are fully surrendered to His control, to the will of the Lord. And the will of our Lord in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 is that we are, ought to walk wisely. Now this term for walk here, peripateo, is not a reference to literal walking, but it's used figuratively to describe the manner of our lives, our Christian lifestyle, how we go about our lives each day. This is not a new concept, however. A few months ago in Genesis, we heard how Enoch walked with God. Remember that? Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. He was on the way of God. He was on the way of wisdom, as Proverbs talked about, talks about over and over again. Same with Abraham, whom Yahweh tells to walk before me and be blameless. The walk is how the faithful man or woman of God conducts themselves. Paul in Colossians, another prison epistle written at the same time, prays that they might be filled with the full knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and multiplying in the full knowledge of God. To walk means to tread about. And Paul's exhortation is the way the spirit-indwelled man or woman treads about is on the path of wisdom, knowledge, understanding of what? General, general philosophy? Human relationships? How to be a good American? How to win friends and influence people? No. Verse 17, in the will of the Lord. The will of the Lord, the knowledge of God. Makes sense. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9. You know what that means. Everyone living out there in this world who claims to be wise and knowledgeable, if they don't truly know this Lord, haven't even begun 
to be wise or knowledgeable. In fact, Proverbs 1 goes on to say they are fools. Fools. God says they are ignorant fools who despise wisdom and discipline. On the contrary, true believers truly know God. It's a consequence of His Spirit residing within us. And the way we know Him is through the Spirit's revelation of His Word. This is where He's revealed Himself to us, in His holy and inspired Word. This is how we know how to walk wisely, because He tells us. That's why we don't cast it aside for Christian TED Talks or self-help seminars or motivational speeches. We just say, Here's the will of the Lord for your life. Look carefully how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. All throughout this this letter, Paul talks about the Christian walk. He was no preacher of easy believism here. He he even tells us how our our pre-Christ walk looked in, in the eyes of the Lord. He says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Don't be like the walking dead. Like the spiritual zombies of this world, a.k.a. unbelievers. Your old self. Don't, don't walk like your old self. Don't walk like an unbeliever. They walk in darkness. Spirit-indwelled women aren't to tread upon the, the wide path of destruction any longer. We are, we are on the narrow way. We've come through the gate, who is Christ. He, he says as much in a few verses, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Walk in them. We'll look in Ephesians 4 next week, Lord willing, where he says, I exhort you to walk worthy. Walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. A heavenly calling. That's our salvation. We were saved. Now we walk in that salvation. Now that you are a people of, uh, part of the people of God, no longer walk as the Gentiles also walk. In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the hardness of their heart. Don't do that, Paul says. Don't walk as men who have no fear of God. That's the opposite of wisdom. That's not you anymore. You know him, so act like it. Walk worthy of your calling. And walk in love. He says in in our chapter, verse 2, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. 4 verse 8, you were formerly in darkness. Now you are in light, in the light of the Lord. So walk, walk as children of light. Walk wise, my brothers and sisters. And what is true wisdom? Again, the fear of God. Not only the initial terror at the realization of his coming wrath, but for believers who have been spared from that wrath, an ongoing reverential awe that causes us to want to know him and to love him and to live for him and obey him and to be conformed into his image until, that, until our dying breath. That's the Christian life. 
And again, that's the heart of the elders here. That's the basis for what we do in our personal lives, in our pastoral lives. We want to do all things for the glory of the Lord, even if it means that we're not necessarily popular, either in the world or in the church. We want to first walk and then lead his flock on a path of wisdom, on the way of wisdom, the wisdom that comes from knowing him, so that the moment we take our final breath on earth, he said, and he says, how did you feed my flock? We can say, we sought to shepherd them according to your revealed will, not our will. And that's certainly the case when considering some of the distinctive beliefs and practices within this church, including what is a very hot topic in American evangelicalism, that which has caused the departure from and the division of many a church across this good land. Of course, I'm talking about music. The music. It may seem a trivial thing at first glance, but we've had people, long timers even, leave this body over the music. Can you believe that? So why do we do what we do in terms of music? Well, let's look again at verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation or debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, let me be clear. I don't want to stand up here this morning picking apart and critiquing how other churches and people do it. I can't do it. I mustn't do it. I just don't have the time. Now, if you want to take me out to lunch this week, (laughs) I'd be happy to share a few things. It's important that I preface this point by saying there is much freedom when it comes to music in the church. There are hardly any chapters and verses to tell us how and when to do music. How many songs? What should those songs be like? What instruments should there be? What should there not be? It would have been great if Paul said, okay, four songs in the Lord's Supper service, three in the preaching service, one to close and have a good day. But he didn't say that because that's not the only way to do it. There's freedom in Christ for churches to do whatever they feel convicted and led to do for their people. Whatever their leaders feel as those who will give an account is the wisest for their flock, their people, right? But just because all things are lawful doesn't mean all things are profitable, right? Certainly doesn't mean that all things are done in wisdom. We feel that the best approach to music in the church is to sing doctrinally sound, theologically rich, congregationally friendly songs. In other words, where the main instrument is not the guitar or the drums or the piano even, even though this is is beautiful. Shadow facts is what we named it. (laughs) We love the piano here, but not as the main instrument. Rather, we feel the human voice ought to be the main instrument and not that of the music leader, not just the ones with the microphones, but all of us, all of the people of God, all the congregation of God, all of the flock of God. Literally, this text reads, speaking with yourselves meaning all believers, meaning all members of the body in Psalms, which is, quote, used in the New Testament of a religious song in general, having the character of an Old Testament psalm. The word actually means to pluck. 
and hymns, in other words, songs of praise, songs of honor, in honor of God, a composition of words which include praise and glory to God, a de- declaration of just how great he really is, and spiritual songs. The word for song there is O'Day, where we get the word ode, ode. But the qualifier is that they are spiritual odes, spiritual songs, songs led by Sung in the power of the Spirit who now dwells permanently within all who belong to him. Again, spiritual songs. The basis of which is best defined by Paul in Colossians 3. Listen closely now. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God, teaching and admonishing in music. Not shutting off your brain and repeating something over and over again, but teaching and admonishing. That's our view here at Lakewood Bible Chapel. Lyrical content heavy in doctrinal instruction derived from the word of Christ with all wisdom, with the intention of knowing God, and as a result of knowing who he truly is, praising him. That's the natural response. How great thou art. Yes. And again, continually slow. Uh, Congregationally so, excuse me. Collectively so. Where you're not just being sung to or sung at, but, but you're actually an active participant. You're a key participant. Interestingly, I didn't know this till last week, this idea of being sung to was a common practice for almost a thousand years of church history. One commentator said for over a thousand dark years of its history, uh, 500 to 1500 AD, uh, the church in general did not sing. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Quote, from shortly after the New Testament times until the Reformation, what Music the church had was usually performed by professional musicians. The music they presented could not be understood or appreciated by the average church member. In any case, they could only sit and listen, unable to participate. When the Bible came back into the church during the Reformation, singing came with it. Martin Luther and some other Reformation leaders are among the greatest hymn writers of church history where the True gospel is known and believed. Music is loved and sung. End quote. Now some have said to us, why don't you sing the songs that we hear on Christian radio or see on the TV? (laughs) And for Pete's sakes, where's the guy standing up front with the guitar? Well, again, the conviction of the elders is that it's it's an unnecessary distraction and one more tool used to separate the music leader from the congregation. We often have a guitar in the background. We're not against guitars. But we feel the man leading with a guitar tends to be the focus instead of the words. You've seen it yourself. The song starts. Ching, ching. Oh, I'm I'm off here. Let me go. And they move that little clip thing. I'm out of tune. Let me start over. Everybody starts over. Or let me do this unexpected chord change or this fancy intro here nobody's ever heard of before. Ka-ching, 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 ka-ching. Again, free, churches have the freedom to do that, but we have the freedom to not do that. And again, we, it might seem like a pithy little thing. P. 
people have gotten very upset at us for making such a decision here and have gone so far as to say it's not possible to sustain a proper level of spirituality in this place without it. I'm not kidding you. Someone once said to me something like, the worship pastor, which we don't even have, by the way, but the worship pastor has to have a guitar. Or how will the people identify that I'm truly gifted to be the leader? Instrumental talent confirms the calling. I said, first of all, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) Second of all, I don't care if Jimi Hendrix gets raised from the dead (laughs) and comes to Lakewood Bible Chapel. He's not leading music with a guitar in his hands, okay? (laughs) I said that to him. Didn't like it. We're not really looking for musical talent here, but rather musical leadership. If they're good, that's a bonus. As Jerome said, let young men hear this. Let those who hear it, who have the office of singing in the church, that they sing not with their voice, but with their heart to the Lord. Not like tragedians physically preparing their throat and mouth that they may sing after the fashion of the theater in the church. He that has but an ill voice, if he has good works, is a sweet singer before God. Hmm. Let the servant of Christ so order his singing that, he, uh, that the words which are read may please more than the voice of the singer. That the spirit which was in Saul may be cast out of them who are possessed with it and not find admittance in those who have turned the house of God into a stage and theater of the people. It's like Vody says, if you can't say amen, you've got to say ouch. All right? You want to lead musical worship here, it will require a right heart attitude behind it. Pure motivations free from self-glorification and self-exaltation. Noel does a great job. Amen? Amen. He's concerned with actually leading us in praise and worship of the Lord rather than putting on a performance. A rare thing these days. You're a rare bird, Noel Johnson. (laughs) A rare bird. Praise the Lord. We want our singing to be clear, concise, precise, directed to the Lord, about the Lord, and for the glory of the Lord. We choose songs that reflect those qualities. Then we put them up on the screen for you to sing. Again, I've often said that the responsibility, responsibility of the music leader is right there with, if not even greater than the preacher. Now, it's one thing for me to stand up here and preach and say, here's what God wants you to know about life both here and the next, and I'll be held accountable for what I say. But when folks come into our doors and those words pop up on the screen, we're actually saying, hey, come sing this with us. Here's how we view God. Now we're calling on you to participate in those convictions as well, which is why it's so terrifying to go into churches where this tremendous responsibility is so clearly not being taken seriously. But again, I'm not going to call curmudgeon this morning. I'm not going to do it. Just know that uh, even though people have left, and recently, on the basis of being emotionally manipulated by trendy music, the elders of this church remain just as committed to having theologically sound, doctrinally rich content from the music stands as we are from the pulpit. And we want to encourage you all, as his body, 
to come into this place and sing praises to your Lord with your whole heart, unashamedly. Now on to the next point, which frankly is even more controversial, especially in these days of women's lib, rampant feminism, faux equality, and sexual confusion extending far beyond that of the demonic transgender movement. That is, the biblical roles for men and women in the church and home. You thought music was a dividing factor in the church today? (laughs) Better buckle up. Look at verse 22.3 in your outlines. Here we go. Wives, be subject or submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Quick note. You come into church like ours today, you'll quickly notice that we, again, don't quite fit into the mold of contemporary American evangelicalism, and we're aware of that. No women pastors, no women deacons, no, music, no women music leaders even, no women praying for the bread or the cup or passing the elements or even reading the scripture aloud. I mean, we have 10 minutes in the Lord's Supper service where we ask the men of the chapel specifically to stand up and give direct address of thanksgiving to the Lord on behalf of themselves, their wives, their families, and the church. I understand how that looks. Believe me. But again, we're not really concerned with how we appear before men. Certainly not unbelieving men, including nominal Christians or cultural Christians. We're concerned with how we appear in the eyes of the one to whom we will give an account. And the divinely inspired text says, quote, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are, subje- but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. But if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Now, as a mentor of mine once said, you don't have to exegete or comment on that text to be offensive these days. You don't have to comment on that to be offensive. You just have to read it. I'm just telling you what it says, though. That's what it says. Nevertheless, that is what it says, right? Those aren't my words. Those are the Holy Spirit's words. But because they're his words, they're my words. And they should be your words, too. Now, what does it mean? That women can't say anything when they're in here? Like, they're just supposed to come in, head down like they're at some funeral, complete, completely quiet, not making a peep again until they go outside of those doors? Is that what that means? Of course not. Does it mean that men are superior to women? That men are of, of greater worth in the eyes of the Lord? That men are smarter than women? That men have higher spiritual sensitivity and wisdom than than women and should therefore be the ones who do all the talking? Is that what that means? Of course not. Frankly, I'd rather hear from some of our women standing up during those 10 minutes compared to what I've heard from some men over the past 15 years. (laughs) That's not what it means. Men and women are equal in the eyes of the Lord and not like this twisted and forced equity nonsense that we see in the culture today. I'm talking true equality. 
true equality in terms of worth, value, intelligence, spiritual wisdom, and even moral culpability. And certainly, certainly equal in terms of salvation. But the roles of men and women, the roles are different. We are equal, yet different. This is a matter of headship. It's a matter of authoritative responsibility. We've done several sermons on this, recently even. Back in 2022, I did a two-week study on biblical headship from Genesis chapter two. The principle of biblical manhood and womanhood and the practice of biblical manhood and womanhood. Brad preached from Genesis chapter two last year. If this doctrine is unclear to you or a concern to you, I strongly suggest you go back and listen to all three of those sermons. It It will tell you in detail why we do what we do here but I'll give you the Cliff's Notes. Genesis chapter two, pre-fall, mind you, describes God's will in terms of how we ought to operate within his parameters for leadership, both in the home and in the church. And it says that the woman is in submission, subjection to the man. Man was made first, woman was named by man. Man is the head of the entire human race. It's been that way throughout human history and throughout scripture, including where Paul says, a woman shall not exercise authority in the church. A woman must learn in quietness, in all submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet, he tells Timothy in his first epistle. We're aware well of the the context, the historical context here, but we're not going to use that hypothetical or uh, really what is a hypothesis of this interpretive method which somehow blurs the line of what God is so clearly saying here. We're not going to stray from our, our normal hermeneutic of plain literal meaning just because this isn't going along with what we want to do in the church. We can't do it. Now, let me be clear. Does it mean that all women in here are in submission to all men in every area, including the home and the church? No. Each woman is in submission to the Lord first, and then, if married, to her own husband. In other words, my wife is not in submission to you just because you're a man, and your wife is not in submission to me just because I'm a man. But women in general, married or unmarried, are not permitted to exercise authority in a spiritual capacity over any man at all. Certainly not in the church. Therefore, just as Jesus' 12 apostles were all male, so we too have all male leadership. All-male elders, all-male preachers, all-male home group and service leaders, and of course, all-male teachers, unless, of course, the women is instructing other women or children. And while we know it may not be necessarily popular to shepherd in such a way, we may know it may not necessarily be the popular way to shepherd a flock or to fill a college or a seminary these days, we do believe it's the way to wise way to lead the local church. Why? Because again, that's what the Bible says. (laughs) That's what the Bible says. Now, having said all that, 
the wording is very important here in chapter five and as in other places. Part of the understanding of proper biblical headship is to keep on reading after verse 22. So, so men can see what type of leaders we are called to be. I've said it a number of times. A church like ours has the ability to attract the worst types of men because of our convictions surrounding biblical headship. Men who use these texts to manipulate women, to oppress their wives, to abuse their wives, to treat their wives like slaves, like lesser beings, like second-class citizens. Because of this text, we've seen it. We've had them here in this church. And we've been direct in our confronting of them and telling them, you cannot justify your anger and abuse based off words like the wife is to submit. And typically, they just go off somewhere else, desperately trying to find and then magnify the areas that they think we need to improve instead. But all we're saying is this, you must keep on reading. Keep reading, namely, the part where it says that you... The man of the house, just like we, the leaders of this church, are in submission first. We submit first before expecting a wife or a church to submit. We submit first to the head who is Christ. And when we, true spirit-indwelled believers, truly submit to him, the last thing in the world we want to do is oppress or abuse our wives. Or the members of this church, whether physically, emotionally, or spiritually. Instead, men, we are to love our wives. Serve our wives. To serve the women of this church. To honor them. To cherish them. To live sacrificially for them. To lead them well. To practice servant leadership. That's a true leader. A true leader is not one who has to go around reminding his wife that he's the leader. You need to submit to me. I'm the leader. You're no leader at all. You're a joke. We are to serve our wives. That's the command. Look for yourself. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, Paul says, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is also to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, a lot of men out there uh, today demand much respect, though they deserve absolutely none. I'm talking both husbands and pastors alike. It's clear from the text 
that only those men who are in submission to God's word themselves are worthy of the respect and submission that it then promises. We submit first, though. Now, again, for the sake of time, we must go on. But I don't want to leave you without some action items on this point here. I would seriously encourage you all to listen to those sermons. Grab Alex Strauch's book on the way out, Equal Yet Different, if you don't have one. I put a bunch on the, uh, in the foyer there. In them, you'll see the scriptural justification for our shepherding this flock according to the principles of biblical headship and how we as elders would not be walking in wisdom or shepherding in wisdom if we kowtowed to the culture in this area, as so many others within Christendom unfortunately have and are. Leading us to the final distinction and explanation for why we do what we do, which is found in Paul's next words, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. We're all aware we're, ne- we're probably never going to be a big church, but Lord's will be done. We like it like that. In fact, we said if we get over 200 people ever, ever, Lord willing, we'll just plant another church. That's how we sh- are able to shepherd well. Look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. So now he has switched to the children's responsibility. Pay attention now, children. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you. You may live long in the land. But then immediately, immediately he goes back to the duties of the spiritual head of the home, the man of God, who, remember, is in submission to Christ. Right back. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He says the very same things in that letter to the the believers at Colossae. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting to the Lord. In the Lord, excuse me. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be embittered against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. What I want to focus on in our remaining time together is that fourth verse of Ephesians chapter 6, okay? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. First, the negative command. Do not. Do not provoke your children of any age to anger. Don't aggravate them to the point of hostility. Don't cause them to resent you, either as little ones or as adult children who look back with bitterness at how you raised them. Paul says, don't do it. Now, this resentment, it could come for a variety of reasons. Abuse, of course, Neglect, abandonment, favoritism, setting too high of expectations for them, constantly putting them down, even ongoing harshness toward their mother. Sometimes you just have a rebellious kid, though, and though you've done everything possible to raise them well, they just despise you. They hate you. That's common today, actually. I mean, on and on it goes here, but intentional cruelty to or antagonism of children is never permissible in Scripture. Never. 
In Paul's time and in Gentile pagan regions like Ephesus, men viewed family as property and had the authority to pretty much do anything they wanted to their family members at any time, including having them put to death if they didn't obey them, obey them as they ought. They just say, uh, just kill them. But Paul says, no, 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 no. That, that's not how it works here. That's not how, it's not like that for the spirit-indwelled man of God. The spirit-indwelled man of God loves their wives. We serve our wives. We love our children. Of course, they're a gift from the Lord. Men are called to serve their women and their children in love. Just like the elders are called not to lord over women and children in this body, but to love and serve the women and children of this body. It's the same way. And one of the ways that men serve women and children is by bringing them them up, excuse me, children, is by bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's That's the positive command here. The negative is don't provoke your children to anger. The positive is, but do, do bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And this is where we need to make the distinction known. This is why I said we're not going to be a very big church. (laughs) The bringing up of children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord is the Father's job, not the church's job. It's your responsibility, first, Dad, to bring them up, to nourish them, Literally, to nurture and care for little children as you would a little plant. As Calvin said, to fondly cherish them in the Lord, in the discipline, in the, the whole counsel is what this means. The teaching of God, not just in the sense of chastening and correcting them, but the discipline, meaning the practices, the ways. As he says here, the instruction. In other words, in the word and will of the Lord. That's your job, men. That's not the church's job. People come in here and they say, well, where's the kids club? Where's the Awana? Where's the youth group? What what is this? You only have child care up to first grade? Where's the children's church, the junior high class on Sunday mornings and the high school group to which we say we don't have that? We believe children, eight and up or so, eight, ten, whatever, ought to learn to sit in the sanctuary next next to their parents and be under the authority of God's word as the body meets together. Now, again, is this the only way? Can I point to a chapter and verse which says don't have the junior high meet in a separate room on Sunday mornings? No. But we feel it's most wise and certainly not unreasonable by any means to expect a young person to sit there for an hour while they hear not only the word of God preached, but witness their parents hearing the word of God preached as well. Just like it's beneficial for them to come and see their dad praying in the Lord's Supper. Oh, he's leading our family. He's leading the wife. He's leading the congregation even. This is a good thing. I mean, they sit in class for six to eight hours a day, right? They watch shows for hours a day. They can watch a sports game for hours a day. They're on their phones in many cases for, or iPads for many cases hours a day being exposed to all this wonderful world has to offer to them all day long on their little phone. 
And now you're telling me you want to stick them in some separate room with their peers when the body of Christ gathers together to be instructed by the words of this book? That's what you're telling me? Stick them in there with their buddies? That we cannot acquiesce to. And we will not. Having said that, one sermon a week, just as for an adult, is nowhere uh, close to being sufficient to nourish your everlasting soul, nor is it for theirs. This is all supplemental. Even what we're doing here, this is supplemental. Therefore, the father of the home is to teach them spiritual things. The mother as well, of course. But the father is to take the lead even before the church in the bringing up their children in the ways of the Lord. The father is the spiritual leader. The father. It's been that way since the beginning. This isn't new. God's will for Abraham was that he might command his children and his household after him, that they would keep the way of Yahweh to do righteousness and justice. That's the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's Genesis 18. Last week, Cam took us through Deuteronomy 6. Moses says, I'm teaching you so that you will teach it to them so that you and your son and your grandson might fear Yahweh your God. You know what that sounds like to me? Wisdom. Wisdom. We are to impart the wisdom of knowing God unto our children, which of course requires that you first have wisdom, right? As someone has said, uh, well said, I should say, uh, Train up the child in the way he should go, but make sure you go that way yourself. It's a sad state when men pass their kids off to others to handle their, their responsibilities that belong to them. S. Lewis Johnson says that we as spirit-filled parents should never surrender our responsibility uh, to your children. Don't surrender your responsibility to the school, he says. There are certain things you may delegate to the school. The school may teach them mathematics. But don't delegate your responsibility to the school. Don't delegate your responsibility to the church, he says. That is a great mistake that many professing Christians make. They delegate all the spiritual responsibility of bringing up their children to the church. That's a very, very sad thing, he says. One commentator said, if a man does not teach his children truth, others will teach them error. It's a man's responsibility. Another asked, what are you teaching your children? How to hunt? How to play golf? How to cheer on the alma mater? Beloved, as good as those things are, make sure the temporal events are seasoned with a healthy healthy dose of the eternal word. And that's right. Listen, I'm not rebuking you this morning. This isn't a rebuke. On the contrary, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you, but also to caution you, uh, to caution you to consider that moment when you stand before the Lord to give an account. When he asked not how tight was the spiral you taught little Jimmy to throw, but how did you raise him up in my discipline and instruction? That's why we as elders want to train up men to be men and not like those sappy men's conferences where they say, wait, 10 ways to be a manly man for Christ. 
No, we want to train you to be biblical men, leaders, servant leaders, men of God. That's, that's our responsibility as shepherds, as we'll see next week and the following year, to train you up, to equip you. And, and we're here for you, for you brothers. You, you're not alone in this battle. Come to us. We have resources. We can provide biblical counsel, even ways to get started leading your family, as awkward as it can be at first. Uh, we're going to start having breakfasts once a month even here, starting next Saturday. We can support one another in this area, but we're not going to hold back on being crystal clear on the Lord's expectation for you as men. We will not only share in love, but we'll share the truth in love. All right, that's enough for this morning. Amen? Amen. I want to encourage all who are in Christ that the Bible is written to an imperfect people, to a broken people, to a people who are not well, to those who know they are in need of a physician, namely, to all true believers. The good news is God doesn't leave his people broken or dead. First of all, he makes us alive together with him through the forgiveness of our sins and the salvation of our souls, but then he gives us the the prescription, the wisdom even, for how to navigate through the rest of our lives on the way. And we all get to do it together as men, women, families, and the church. I pray that if you don't have the Spirit of God dwelling on the inside of you, that you would cry out for the Lord to save your everlasting soul, that he would forgive you, that he would cleanse you, that he would seal you with his Spirit, and that he would spend the rest of your days on earth molding and shaping and conforming you to the image of Christ, and all by his grace alone, and all for his glory alone. Amen? Amen. Let's close our eyes and pray.